Hello, and welcome to Academy Conversations Uncut, a podcast of rare Q&As with the world's foremost filmmakers, hosted by the Academy and released for the first time to the public, unedited. Today's panel was recorded in October 2019 at the Samuel Goldwyn Theater in Beverly Hills, California. Discussing the documentary film, Making Waves, The Art of Cinematic Sound, a history of the emotive power of sound in film, we were joined by producer-director Midge Costin, film subject Walter Murch, producers Bobette Buster and Karen Johnson, and editor David J. Turner. The panel was hosted by Pat Morrison. Here's Pat. Thank you everyone for coming today. So won't you please welcome the people who are responsible for what you just saw. Midge Costin, the director. Bobette Buster, producer. Karen Johnson, producer. Walter Murch, whom you saw interviewed. And David Turner, an editor in this film. And you know, when I knew that I was going to do this panel, I thought, well, this is a group of people I will not have to tell. Please hold the mic closer to your mouth. <laughs> you guys have this all down. You've got this cold. So. But, but I will start with Midge. And what I was thinking as I was watching this about what an art it is to do what you do, but do you want us to notice sound while we're watching a movie, or do you not want us to notice sound? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, actually, no, we want you to notice the story, the characters. Um, and, you know, people say a lot sometimes to me, oh, it must ruin the movie for you because you must just be thinking about sound and conscious of sound. But no, I, I'm not, unless it's like really, really good and something different maybe, but or really, really bad. Like, where's the sound? Or why is it? in that speaker, but um, because you wanted to work with this, you wanted to work so well, we're not doing sound for sound's sake, right? I'm sure there are a lot of sound people in the audience, but we don't do sound for sound's sake, like something like the radio, but we're doing it with picture and you want it to work with the picture so well that you don't realize what we're doing. You know, just like we don't think hair and makeup or production design or, you know, you just want to get pulled into the story and that's what, that's what our job is. And, Walter, over the time that you've been working in this genre, have you seen not not just the technical advances, but how the sound has been regarded as part of the filmmaking process, um, in integral to it rather than perhaps incidental, as some directors may think? Well, I, th I think it's always been a challenge because of budget problems and limitations. The, the budget for post-production sound on films is a relatively small proportion and when other things happen during the shooting the budget for sound will inevitably diminish so we're always struggling oh, you're, you're the squeeze in the toothpaste too. yeah then. yeah it uh, but it, it depends on ultimately on the director and the director's interest somebody like Orson Welles who came from a radio theater background brought with him when he did Citizen Kane and all of his subsequent films he was fascinated with the power of sound and the spatialization of sound, which had been almost completely ignored up to that point because uh, before Citizen Kane, people just depended on the picture to give you a sense of the space. And what Wells did uh, that broke new ground was to uh, also uh, involve sound in that spatialization. 
So, and Hitchcock was, was very fascinated by sound. So it, it depends on, the, on the, the, the filmmakers themselves to, to be the forces that drive this. And Bobette, I'll ask both you and Karen how you came to this film. Bobette, you've got an academic background as well. So talk a little bit about that. And then we'll get to some of the issues like five screens full of credits of <laughs> clips. <laughs> Actually, this started when I was a graduate student at USC in the Peter Stark Producing Program. In my fall semester, the first semester, Jay Roach, who at that time was my film, producing, film production teacher, gave one lecture on sound design, and it was The Elephant Man uh, with Alan Splett, was the sound designer with David Lynch. And it just blew my ears wide open that you could create such uh, inner life revealed of this monster who so hated his life, you felt his loneliness in the first reels, and then you brought in the Samuel Barber adagio as he developed in confidence and, and love of life, and we saw the immersion and the re revelation of dignity. And that just blew my mind. So anyway, I went on to create a course on sound and storytelling, did it around the world. Pixar asked me to do it there. And who should be in my audience but Gary Rydstrom, who's won seven Oscars for sound design. And I was like, oh my god, it's, it's Gary Rydstrom. And I went up to him and I said, Mr. Rydstrom, if you don't agree, and he said, I love this. He said, let's go to lunch. And so um, I got very cheeky and I said, you know, how come you guys haven't done a documentary? It was, it's about time. And he said, look, we're very busy. And <laughs> he said it would take a long time. And at that time, Clips Clearances was the big, you know, bugaboo, which Midge can discuss, you know, it would be too expensive. And, but I had been working with USC Law Clinic, Entertainment Law Clinic on fair use with Jack Lerner and Michael Donaldson. And I'd been actually at a Capitol Hill, you know, testifying before the Librarian of Congress. And he said, you know, Babette, if you do it, I'll back you and I'll introduce you to all the major people. Uh, George Lucas, Spielberg, Walter Murch, Ben Burt. But he said, you have to go to Midge Coston at USC. And that's how we started it. Got it. And and for uh, for you, Karen, how did you come aboard? And your uh, digital storytelling is that your area of expertise? No. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> documentary. I I made the wrong okay. note. So no, please I, go I ahead. Had previously done a documentary um, that was right. focused on a different part of the industry. I did a documentary. I produced a documentary called Double Dare about Hollywood stunt women, and Bobette knew that. I had been her student at USC, and um, so she was aware of my background and interest in that, and I think, um, you know, described the project to me. I had a strong memory of having seen Visions of Light, which had come out in theaters at a time that you rarely saw a documentary in theaters, and so the idea of exploring the other half of the cinematic experience was appealing to me, and I got involved with she and Midge to and produce it. Your sense of, of, from your documentary work in particular, the, the role of sound, is it different in documentaries, do you think, than in, in some of the features that we've been talking about? Well, absolutely, and uh, I think probably if one of the sound experts here on the panel wants to discuss that. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, uh, I, I would say no. Like, I, I think, you know, we're doing the same thing in story, in documentary as we are in features. We're trying to, we're helping tell the story. We're thinking about character. We're thinking about, you know, setting a mood and a tone. 
And, um, you know, sometimes, I mean, students come in to um, USC and they might think, like, documentary is, like, <laughs> uh, it's, it's more truthful or something. But it's like you're passionate about something. That's why you want to tell a story. So, and, and the thing about if we, we all, you know, when you're recording somebody, when you're recording on the set or when you're recording in a location, um, you're getting the voice mostly. So if somebody's speaking, you're, you're really trying to get the voice. So you miss all these other things. So it's not like real life. So we have to recreate that to uh -huh. make it seem natural. And, um, you know, and, and that's what, you know, we're always going for that kind of performance in fiction. And, and Karen was I would just say there's in. obviously not a performance element that you're, you're not uh, ADRing your interviewees and uh, changing your, know you know, that. using the power of sound. We do a little ADR. <laughs> Now it all comes out. Bob, yeah. <laughs> I, I would say that uh, the great we're in an era of great documentaries, and so it's our privilege to come out during this era. era. And uh, we had many segments for our film, and we had to kill many darlings of stories. But uh, Laura Hirschberg... Some of them were in the audience. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Laura Hirschberg, who's in our film, talked about working on... This is an example, Survival of the Plague which was all the 70s recording of the AIDS uh, crisis, the ACT UP movement, and how she had to use sophisticated re-recording devices to bring the level of 70s audio recording to our level. And what you see is that this, where we are now with the arts and sciences has taken us to a whole new level of immersive storytelling. And that's what we wanted to show in our documentary. And so, you know, that sound is actually an evolution of the technology. This, and Walter should talk about this, the dancing shadow, how once it was unleashed. Will you talk about that, Walter? Let, We're now on a new level. Let me get to David before that, because you've come from USC as well. Uh, you're, you've been hearing, as you worked on this, I'm sure, all the stories about how sound was orphaned, how it was sidelined, how it was kind of secondary or incidental. Is it different now, both for young people who are coming into the industry and for the regard that it's given uh, at this most important influential university program? Uh, I mean, I can't speak to the industry overall, just my own experience, but like I, I know, like at USC, it's incredibly valued. Uh, you know, like we, we have a, a, a class where everyone kind of comes together and like, we we divide up into the different roles, and you know the sound is celebrated just as much as the other crafts in that. And I actually was able to take that class with Midge at USC, and um, and that was kind of how I got connected to the whole film. So were you then intimidated as you were editing this film about and with <laughs> the woman who'd been your professor and people you would end up working <laughs> with? I'm sure. Well, uh, I mean, I wasn't intimidated with Midge. I mean, Midge and I had just had such a you know great. I mean incredible teacher and um you know and and it was great working with with bob ed and karen and everyone and um i i was very intimidated by uh making being an editor for a film about everyone in the film industry <laughs> it was uh, i i mean in time i think you know we, we got a rhythm but going in it was definitely like wow this is this is going to be seen by film industry people and they they'll know if it's well edited so <laughs> So, but I, I'm, yeah, it was. Well, Walter, what was the story of Dancing Shadows that they've trying are trying to entice you to tell? Uh, it's it's the fact that before cinema, the the world creates sound, but those sounds are inevitably uh, accompanied by the thing that produced them, like like 
when we walk around, our shadow just follows us. What happens in cinema is that we can detach that shadow of sound from the object that creates it, and we can we can create strange other shadows, or we can make the shadow of sound dance on its own. And it 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 was a unprecedented liberation of of two of the senses that had seemed to be inevitably twinned together, sight and sound. But cinema allowed us to detach those and give each of them a prominence when it was appropriate. Uh, and, and going back and forth, there are moments where the sight would become the, the over, overwhelming st way of telling the story at that moment, and other moments for sound. Right. Uh, but th there's also a funny, uh, a, a particular alchemy of the way the human brain works. If if sound is having an influence on you in cinema, by and large, it's flying underneath the radar of conscious uh, perception, how, it's, how that is influencing you, and yet you are being influenced by it, but what happens is that you, the audience, reproject that feeling onto the screen, and then you attribute how you're feeling to what you're looking at. Hmm. But you're actually being made <laughs> to feel that so way. So the sort of the sublimated, your brain sublimates the audio to what your eyes are doing. Then. Right. Hmm. That, you told me one thing, Midge, that was surprising. Nobody wanted to give you any money for this. <laughs> it was really, you know, we went around for, because we started at 2010, and uh, Bobette, Karen, and I, you know, going around and talking, and it was, I mean, I'm, kind of used to it when you're in sound, you know, I'm always surprised when the audience shows up, you know, for a movie about sound, <laughs> but you get used to kind of not, I mean, being invisible, you know, and um, so we approached people. But not inaudible. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but we tried to, yeah, we tried to raise money, you know, we even went to Dolby and, um, and it was just, you know, I, I think people... I don't know what it, what it we, is about We sound. went to, uh, Karen and I went to major markets like hot dogs, and we're fortunate to get to pitch this in the sort of gladiator forum of the hot dogs forum. And uh, we got a lot of love in the room, particularly by major broadcasters like BBC, and they said, oh, this is a great idea. We thought, great, we're going to make some money. And they said, no, you're from Hollywood. Uh, go get money from Hollywood. And so we went to Hollywood, and Hollywood said, but you're a documentary, and you should but do what they sad. do. And so we were f having to get very resourceful and figure out how do we even start to begin. Uh, so that's how it, that's why so, it took a while. Yeah, and then we did, and my sister, who happens to be here today, is our executive producer who's been really, thank God she studied finance instead of art <laughs> like me. <laughs> We wouldn't. And be we wouldn't there. be done. We wouldn't. No, it's be true. Here. And then we did a Kickstarter campaign, and we did, um, and we had other ex executive producers who came on. And one thing that struck me, not only looking at this panel, but looking at the film, was that perhaps more than other elements of filmmaking, there's pretty much more equal division of labor between men and women. A lot of women in this part of the industry. So perhaps each of you can talk about that from your point of view. Why that's the case, and. And when we get to David to talk about whether you're seeing that now in the academic setting as well. Yeah. Um, just, I know that uh, one of the reasons that I ended up, um, well, let's see, I, 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 when I started in film, it was that I was start, I came out of film school and I was gonna do, I was gonna be a sound, I was, I worked uh, apprentice editor, assistant editor, picture, and then a friend, Dan Hageman, called me up and said, uh, 
Midge, no, none of these union guys, he was working at Gamelian Sound. He said, none of the union guys will touch 16 millimeter. And so that's how I started working. He said, you can cut the, di the effects and I'll cut the dialogue. And, um, and so I, I became a dialogue editor. And what I noticed was that there were a lot more women who cut, uh, who cut uh, dialogue instead of effects. And at the time, now dialogue editors are also co-supervisors. So that's a great thing. But there do seem to be more women. And um, the women that I work with... <laughs> would say sometimes, well, they see it like a sewing circle because it's very, it's very detailed work. And so when you're dialogue Wait, so editor, is brain surgery. <laughs> really, well, it's kind of surgery. And um, so there seemed to be a lot more women. And then usually dialogue editors weren't uh, supervisors, but there were people like, like Walter did, would hire uh, Pat Jackson. You know, every, t every time you edited a movie, it seemed like Pat was the, the ed was the supervising editor. And so, and I know that C.C. Hall's in the audience, I think it saw her earlier, and, you know, Richard Anderson hired her. Um, and so there were, but when, but C.C., I remember telling me when she was working at Paramount and she looked around, it was Kay Rose, who's in the movie, who mm -hmm. was the first woman to win an Academy Award, and her daughter, Vicki Sampson, who's also in the movie. And that was it. And really, I can still count on my hand how many women were cutting effects. And just recently, someone came to me and said, oh, Midge, you should meet so-and-so. She's a girl, and she's cutting effects. I mean, a girl oh. of probably 40-something. <laughs> a girl. And, yeah. So, it, so there is kind of this division of labor. Hopefully, it's not, you know. But I don't know if it's changed that much. That would be interesting. You so guys might know. Bobette and... Then Karen? Well, it, this story, uh, what's difficult to tell as a documentary, because you, you know, people would say, oh, it's an abstract story about sound. <laughs> Good luck. And we wanted to bring in characters and show the, uh, create an emotional arc to the story, of course. And as we got into it, and we have like uh, 90 interviews, 500 hours, and all these transcripts, we knew that we had this great story, starting with our philosopher king, Walter, and then Ben with all of his innovation and Star Wars and Gary. And, but we knew we had to bring in women as they had come along and been mentored by particularly Walter and Ben and Gary. And there was a whole new generation of women, Cece Hall, Laura Hirschberg, Anna Belmer, all these great women, Terry Dorman. So we finally, after wrestling with how do we bring in new faces, diversity, other stories, we came up with the graphic design of the circle of talent, which was a line of of Terry Dorman's, and then Walter had talked about the orchestra image, and we combined those mm. as to as a device by which we could tell many stories and bring in many new faces, and and really show the complexity and the range of of tasks that are in the sound industry. I mean, a lot of people in the Academy don't seem to know why there are two Oscars for sound. And, and why are there so many credits for sound <laughs> now? And that was our way of really celebrating that as well as describing the why. And Karen? Well, I would just say that in terms of the point about women, um, I know someone said that maybe the picture presented is, is more women heavy than, than in the movie than it might be actually in the industry. And I do think that we made it a point to be sure and feature women because unfortunately too often that doesn't happen. And um, so as the famous sewing saying goes, if you can see it, you can be it. We wanted people to see it. Yeah. So, and, and so what, one of the things that we did to bring in more women, because historically men were more of the supervisors were and the sound designers, were that we did a lot of the verite footage of people editing um, and mixing. We, we used women. So we had like Anna Belmer, Jessica uh, Gallivan, who's also in the audience here. It's an ADR supervisor, and she 
uh, she was willing to do that. And uh, yeah, and then we use CC for effects and things like that. And and from David's point of view, yeah, I mean, uh, I remember at USC, I think it seemed like it was pretty much 50-50 as far as like men and women that were interested in sound. And even our, our supervising sound editors on the film were were classmates of of me. I think, yeah, Byway and Kim, I think it was like a semester after me and then another semester, they took the same class with Midge. And yeah, I mean, they did a fantastic job. It's, and, yeah. and Walter is the philosopher king. I mean, I'd take that credit any time and it would be offered to me, the philosopher queen. But, but clearly a lot of, people credit you with opening this up to, to people, at least seeing that this was a, a, a position and a role for every for women uh, who might not have been able to do it otherwise. Yes, the, the, the situation when we started Zoetrope back in the, the late 1960s was that the, the transistor uh, was making itself felt and the beginning of what we would call the prosumer uh, movement. And that allowed us to uh, get equipment uh, to produce professional results. Um, and uh, what we wanted to recreate was what we had experienced at film school, which was that there was no division, and I'm talking specifically about sound, between the sound editor and the sound re-recording mixer. If you could edit it, you could mix it. And that became more and more possible with the transistorization and then ultimately the computerization of the, of the process. And But, but when I first uh, left film schools and, and experienced the world in Hollywood here, uh, there was a real division, not just between the sexes, but between the editors and the, the mixers. And the, the editors would be saying, I, I created all this stuff and they're making a mess of it. And the mixers were saying, I'm trying to do the best I can with the terrible job <laughs> that these people gave me. And that was a, kind of an unhealthy situation. It, the equivalent would be if there was a, a division of labor uh, and no authority between the camera operator and the director of photography. You can imagine how chaotic that would be. So we, one of our missions was to erase that uh, technically uh, and then also erase any uh, sexual Differ differentiation there because there's absolutely no reason. The the for historical reasons, uh, the uh, women moved more quickly into editorial, and it's only in the last 10, 15 years that mm. women have started to actually be sitting at the desk themselves. Uh, Pat Jackson would talk in the old days of of what she would call the wall of backs. You know, she'd be sitting uh, behind the mixers and she'd make a suggestion and there would just be this kind of uh, immobile, n nobody would turn around to talk to her. Ooh. And uh, that's, that's begun to completely... I'm, we, I've got to wrap it up, but I want to ask you one question to leave with, Midge, which is um, what, what do you want people to take away from this film? Obviously, an audience in the industry is going to see it differently, but somebody says, I, I think I want to go see that. Um, it, it's really just an appreciation for sound. One of the things I feel like I'm, I'm so fortunate in that I'm, I'm teaching now and that I get to teach people. I feel like I'm getting teach people to listen, but um, really the appreciation because I feel like all of these great directors are saying it's 50% of my movie. It, it is about 
two or three percent of the budget, but it's um, fifty percent of the movie, and it's just that they really appreciate the awareness something. and appreciation. Total too. awareness and yeah. appreciation. To, speaking of appreciation, I just want to acknowledge somebody really audience. quickly. Don Hall um, was uh, <laughs> makes me cry, but uh, it's such a yeah. Um, such a mentor um, of mine at USC, but also has hired so many women and so many, given so many people their start. And he's just one of these beautiful people who is willing to uh, mentor you and let you go. And, um, you know, so, so many people have have, uh, have careers because of him. And anyway, Don, I love you. We love you. And, and thank you for, for everything you've done, too. So some appreciation for the panel. And thanks to all of you for coming. Thanks for listening to Academy Conversations Uncut. We hope you enjoyed this unique access to a members-only Q&A at the Academy. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe, and help us reach film lovers around the world. This podcast was produced by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences.